It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Kay Wenigal. Hi Nat, hi listeners. And Michael Steindl. Hi both and welcome back listeners. We're always looking to provide some diversity and variety for you, our listeners, and I think this is perhaps the first time we've spoken with an environmental epidemiologist and bioanthropologist. Is that right, Kay and Mike? Yes, that's perfect. So Professor Hilary Bambrick is head of the School of Public Health and Social Work, Faculty of Health, Queensland University of Technology. Her research focuses on the health impacts of climate variability and change, especially on more vulnerable populations, and climate adaptation planning to improve health. Her research is largely based in Australia, Ethiopia, Asia and the Pacific. So very broad spectrum. Welcome, Hilary. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Natalie. Hello, Kay and Michael. G'day. Hi, Hilary. So, Hilary, firstly, what does an environmental epidemiologist and bioanthropologist do with her time? <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> basically, it, it just means that I'm, very, I'm interested in the impacts of um, our, the environmental context of the environment on human bodies, if you like, on human health. And I also have an interest going the other way, the impact of humans on the environment in which we live. So if you can, perhaps, you know, we can expand on that explanation by kicking off with a bit of an example for the listeners, maybe one that's close to my heart, food. (laughs) So um, a couple of years ago, you co-authored an article surmising that global warming will make us fat. So it sounds a bit of a funny proposition, but in fact, there's some pretty serious and disturbing science behind the idea. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Look, it is a very simplistic title and obviously meant to be eye-catching, but um, the, the main point of that is, is um, for in Australia in particular, it's going to be harder and harder to be able to access and afford fresh produce. So we, we have a look at the change in climate and the way that that's impacting the way that we grow food. With Whether it's an extreme event such as a cyclone um, knocking out a whole bunch of food crops like it did with Cyclone Debbie last year, or whether it's, um, you know, the slow change that we see or an extreme drought that goes, you know, the millennium drought that went on for 16 years, you know, that impacts our capacity to produce fresh food in Australia. And what that might mean over the longer term is that our um, access and ability to afford fresh food actually um, it becomes more difficult. Um, so we tend to rely on more processed foods, foods that are sort of um, higher in energy, lower in nutrients, and that contributes to sort of the growing obesity epidemic, if you like, in Australia. But having said that, you know, um, that's the situation in Australia. It's very different in overseas. So if you're in a marginal food growing area already overseas, that's going to be strongly impacted by climate change. Um, rains become much less reliable, and you're actually going to see 
much more extremes in terms of food shortages. So, you know, in Australia, we're quite buffered because we can um, import foods from elsewhere. Um, potentially, we can rely on, um, you know, less fresh foods, um, less healthy foods. Um, but overseas, the situation is quite different. And that's what you mean by you're doing research in Asia and Pacific area. So you'd really be noticing it there, would you? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly in the Pacific, um, you know, the cyclone comes through and can take out the cassava crops, for example. Um, but I was thinking more in sort of, you know, say sub-Sahara Africa, for example. So recently, uh, you know, we had um, an El Nino a couple of years ago and that, was, that actually caused a massive drought um, in Ethiopia um, and surrounds. And, you know, we already um, it's already quite difficult to grow foods in some of the areas in Ethiopia. They've got a very big population. Some parts of it are quite lush and green and, you know, relatively easy um, and productive. Uh, but it, across, you know, for, I think there were about 10 million people who were, you know, suffering severe food shortages just because of that El Nino that was most likely made more intense by climate change. Hmm. Yeah, so this isn't some speculative future scenario. This is effects that we're feeling now already. Yeah, look, that's right. And actually, that's something that really struck me when just, um, you know, thinking about this interview, I had a quick look over the things that I'd written over the last five years or so. And one thing I really noticed was, you know, five years ago, I was talking about how things will happen or are likely to happen. And I was reading that and thinking, well, if I was writing that today, the, the tense that I would be using would be quite different because mm. we're seeing these things happening now, these extreme events are happening now. So in a space of five years, things have changed dramatically. They have, yeah. Yeah, no, it was quite, um, quite stark having a look at that and going, wow, I wouldn't be writing it in those words now. And that's what we seem to be finding in every facet of climate change, that everywhere we're looking, we're getting to these tipping points that's so much faster than we were expecting. Well, that's right. So I first started working in this area 20 years ago and we were talking about, you know, the, the future at that point and we were sort of thinking, you know, around about 2020. So we are actually pushing that. We are getting fairly close to that, that point now. Um, but, yeah, look, it is. It, we are seeing a number of things happening around the place that really are sort of, you know, they should be a wake-up call, actually, those extreme events. Even the um, extreme cold that we've recently seen across Europe and, and North America, um, you know, it's it's very easy for climate sceptics to sort of dismiss that and say, oh, well, look how cold it is, you know, so much for global mm. warming as we mm. have. Um, but obviously that's actually an effect of, of global warming and it's because we've got the um, Arctic temperatures, so far north temperatures are warming much more quickly than at lower latitudes. And that's caught, uh, what that's done is caused a weakening in that uh, polar vortex, the, the sort of the system that keeps the cold air up north and that cold air has been able to escape further south and cause those extremely cold that extremely cold weather in those areas so it is all what we've been saying will happen and it's actually um quite devastating to be seeing it happening already mm, yeah what about the impacts on aquaculture on aquaculture mm. yeah look one of the um problems that we sort of see around the Pacific is, I mean, there's lots of problems with sort of fishing in the Pacific and overfishing. There's lots of, uh, you know, international fishing companies come in and they sort of take away lots of the fish so local people don't have access to so many fish. But one of the problems that we're seeing or, you know, ex certainly expecting to see happen more is not, not only you get a change in the fish species in various areas, so, you know, the fish that had uh, been available at certain areas are no longer available because they've moved or migrated or they're not, you know, they can't thrive in those waters anymore but we're also seeing a change in the risks of cigaterra so, so uh, which is fish poisoning so this um, what happens is you get these toxic algal blooms when the water is warm 
and um, reef fish come along and they eat those and then people come along and they eat the reef fish and um, that actually causes severe neurotoxicity. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's... A so the fish can survive the, the toxins but uh, then pass them on to the humans? Yeah, and look, there's no way to tell um, before you eat it if it's, um, if it's poisoned or not. <laughs> so oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of uh, sort of folk tales about how you might be able to tell, but um, yeah. Um, Hilary, just um, please, we're, we're having a little bit of trouble with with hearing you clearly, so if you're able to adjust your position yeah. to the phone or something, that would be great. Um, we, th- another, We have no control over the incoming volume of the line uh, on our computer here, Hilary, so thanks. No worries at all. Is that any better? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a bit clearer. Thank you. So an- another um, item or aspect of food production that mentioned in, in your writing uh, that I guess, you know, is a less direct effect than the the temperatures but it's not often talked about is the impact to pollinators and pests and parasites triple p <laughs> um how how does climate affect those and what's that how does that impact our food production yeah look that's probably a little bit outside my area of expertise but my understanding is that it's pest species that are the ones that are likely to thrive um under warmer um conditions rather than sort of helpful species Another sort of area that we don't sort of think of much is that the quality of our food might be affected as well. So there's, you know, good evidence that higher carbon and warmer temperatures, you you get greater plant growth. So people think, oh, fantastic, this is going to be really good for food production. Mm -hmm. But what actually happens is that those the plants that, that are grown under those conditions actually contain fewer micronutrients. So they're not as good for you as they would be otherwise. So there are sort of sort of far-reaching impacts, if you like. It's not just on the disappearance of food crops, but it's on their quality as well. Someone needs to tell Andrew Bolt that he apparently put extra carbon dioxide in his greenhouse and said the plants grew better, so climate change is good. Yeah, well, it might have so affected his beautiful. intelligence a bit. <laughs> they're, not, they're not going to be very good for you. <laughs> and so uh, some aspects of food production are already adjusting to this. You know, the, the wine industry is starting to... You move some of their um, plantation to cooler climates or, or introduce different species. Is is that evident across the spectrum of our food production? Yeah, look, certainly um, stone fruit growers um, down in the south of Australia are having trouble growing um, growing stone fruit because the temperatures aren't actually getting cold enough. So it is a matter of, of really needing to rethink where we're, where our food producing areas are going to be. Um, and in Australia, we're quite lucky because, you know, we're a big country. We've got quite a bit of variety in our climate. We've got a little bit of space to move. We've got some wiggle room. But there's, you know, there's a limit to um, how much, you know, sort of how much or how far people can move or how quickly. And not only that, but, you, you know, you've got these farms that have been um, around for, for quite some time. And, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of um, sort of cultural value and um, so social value that's embedded in those areas and, and you know, if you need to shift those, you're also taking that away as well. So you've got, um, you know, towns that are built up around farming communities that will actually see a decline as well as people need to move away just to maintain a livelihood and to mm-hmm. keep producing. It's enormous disruption, isn't it? Yeah, and another and look, another thing we don't think about is um, we think about extreme heat affecting people, but it also affects farm animals as well. So you know the, mm. the temperatures, um, and and not just their comfort, but their productivity. So um, dairy cattle, for example, don't produce milk when it's very hot. So you know all, all those issues affect food. It's not just um, plant growth; it's animals as well. So changing tack 
to a broader perspective than just food, Hilary, what health impacts of climate change are evident now? Right. Well, um, looking in Australia, I mean, we do see um, extreme heat is probably the most obvious one uh, to, to the, um, you know, people would be aware of. Um, just to pick an example, at the Australian Open, um, just in January, um, we were seeing court temperatures of up to 69 degrees. So, um, obviously, that's, it wasn't that hot everywhere, but the, ver- the you know, temperatures in the, in the 40s were producing those court temperatures of 69 degrees. So, that's actually pretty much at the limits of, you know, what a human can be in, let alone play tennis in. So we are seeing those extreme events already. Um, in terms of sort of broader impact, um, you'd be aware that in 2009 there was that uh, major heatwave in Melbourne, um, which caused 374 more deaths than would normally have occurred in that in that period. And there was, you know, so many people died that the morgues were, um, the morgues were full and refrigerated trucks had to be brought in to, um, to hold the bodies. So that's fairly extreme, and we do see that happening. Um, um, similarly, you know, the bushfires that were associated with that, with that extreme heat that year, um, the Black Saturday fires, you know, 173 mm. people were killed. Um, and we were focusing on the number of people that were killed in the fires directly yeah. rather than the heat effect. That, well, that's right. Yeah. Those heat wave effects yeah. go right under the radar, don't, don't they? We, we really focused on the immediacy of the bushfire deaths, and you get three times as many deaths from heat waves, and but there are elderly people dying in their homes and things and it's not so visible. Yeah, look, often older people and, you know, certainly people who are less mobile, people who um, have underlying chronic disease, um, um, people who are socially isolated, they're the people who are most at risk from um, dying during a heatwave. But we also have um, another group of people that we don't often think of as being at risk um, are our emergency responders, for example, or outdoor workers, you know, people who are continuing to work during that extreme heat. Mm-hmm. And so you do actually often see a lot of hospitalisations of young men, for example, um, during heat waves when most of the impacts that we think of occur among older people. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Professor Hilary Bambrick from Queensland University of Technology and we're talking about health effects and climate change. So, Hilary, who's anticipating monitoring and preparing for the health impacts of climate change? Sure. Well, it's, um, we're, it's a very good question. I mean, a number of, sort of academics have been doing it for a very long time, but governments are starting... And who's to listening to you? <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, look, governments are starting to get on board, and we do... Um, heat waves are probably the, um, the areas in which most act- activity has occurred, so heat wave planning, preparedness, response, early warnings, those sorts of things. So um, states around Australia have heat wave action plans in place, um, what's interesting is the definition of a heatwave varies as to where you live, um, so which, which makes sense in some ways, but it, um, having a sort of a uniform definition in, um, that's locally relevant um, would be useful in, in some ways as well. So, so heatwaves are, are sort of very much on the radar, uh, which is a very good thing, um, and that sort of how that manifests itself as in you know people you know there's um, public announcements about trying to stay cool, drinking, um, you know, drinking plenty of water, looking out for your neighbours, for your friends, your family, and checking in on people. Um, so that's that's something that we're we're fairly well. I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't like to say we're very well prepared for because it's hard to anticipate what new events are going to look like. But we're certainly aware of these particular events and on the way to planning for them. Hilary, you're, um, sorry to interrupt, but you're an epidemiologist as well, the other aspect of your work, and 
that's looking at the broad patterns of health impacts. So from your studies to date, what are the, what are the broad patterns? What are they looking like? Okay, so, you know, once again, there's sort of the very direct impacts of, from heat waves, from other extreme events, um, severe storms, cyclones, flooding, those sorts of things. Um, more broadly, you get these less direct impacts as well, so impacts on vector-borne disease. So mosquitoes thrive in climates that are warmer um, and in climates that are wetter, and you get more transmission of um, mosquito-borne um, diseases such as malaria, such as dengue, chikungunya, zika, and so on. Um, in Australia, dengue is the one um, that we're sort of on the lookout for. We get outbreaks of dengue in Australia every year in far north Queensland. It's the, it's the kind of thing that if the climate is particularly warm and particularly moist, those outbreaks become harder and harder to contain and they become more expensive to contain as well. And again on the epidemiology, how, uh, how evenly are these changes distributed evenly? Okay, yep, sure. So uh, there's certainly groups of people that are more vulnerable to particular impacts. That depends on the, the health outcome that you're looking at. So we talked about how older people are more vulnerable to um, impacts from heat waves. If you're thinking about vector-borne disease in Australia, mosquito-borne disease, then it's people living up in far north Queensland. Um, but also, you know, we do have other uh, vector-borne diseases in Australia. Ross River virus is quite significant, particularly down south. Um, and again, it's, it's when the environment is particularly warm or particularly wet that those mosquitoes thrive. So if you have a, a warm and wet spring, um, you're likely to get um, sort of a larger amount of um, virus circulating in the population, larger outbreaks of, of those diseases. Okay, and um, you've, you've written a bit about um, unequal gender impacts of, of climate yeah. change. What, what are some of the factors with that? Sure. This would be taking much more a global perspective. Yes. Um, Yep, uh, so uh, for example in extreme events again, um, these are the ones that are sort of the most easy to measure which is why we talk, tend to talk about these ones. Um, so in, for an example, um, in Bangladesh in 1991 there was a cyclone that killed 150,000 people and 90% of those people were women. Wow. Um, that's yeah, that's yeah, certainly a significant figure. So one of the reasons that you get patterns like that where women are uh, sort of more um, impacted than men during those types of events is largely down to poverty. So if we, we look around the world and, you know, nations, nations where there's um, a large amount of poverty, it's women who are overrepresented among the poor. And what that impacts on is people's access to services, um, their networks. Um, there are also particular sort of social constraints that um, have, uh, are impact, uh, put, on, put upon women in some countries. So, you know, they may not be able to um, participate in decision-making to the same extent. They might have greater family responsibilities that mean that they're, um, you know, busy looking after other people rather than looking after themselves. Um, then there may be differences in basic skill sets. So being able to read um, about a particular, you know, what actions they should take or whether it's um, whether they can swim, um, for example. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons why women are overrepresented amongst um, people who die in those extreme events. Um, and if you're thinking sort of less extreme events and sort of more ongoing problems, and, you know, we talked briefly about the issue of food security earlier, um, you know, it's, it's women who are often um, responsible for feeding the family. So um, they'll be the ones who are actually working the land. They'll be the ones um, responsible for buying the food. Um, in some cultures, women eat last, so they will only eat after men have had their fill. Um, and mm. women also have greater um, nutrient requirements than men as well. So that they're sort of, you know, getting less, potentially getting less food and their requirements are greater. Wow. So you mentioned some 
you know, obviously, you know, the, anything that can be done to address that is, is helpful, although it's inevitably sort of piecemeal. Um, one example of a technology that you've mentioned that's been helpful in some situations is a biogas digester. Can you explain yeah. what this is and how it can help women in poverty? Sure. Look, I mean, this is a, a biogas digester is a, I don't know, call it a fancy name, but it's basically, um, it's a latrine system, so it provides sanitation um, and it also, can, and it cements the waste, produces gas that can then be used for cooking um, and then the, the slurry byproduct can be used for fertiliser on a, on a garden. So you get this, you know, lovely system where um, it kind of takes care of everything. But what it also manages to do, um, so it cr- provides sanitation for a community um, so that, you know, you get less diarrheal disease, um, less, you know, greater productivity, less time off work, um, children aren't dying as, as frequently, um, women aren't having to spend the time looking after sick family members and so on. Um, you also get uh, provision of cleaner cooking fuel. Um, so one of the things that lots of communities around the world do is that they're, they're burning solid biomass fuels for cooking in, um, inside their homes. Um, that creates a significant indoor air pollution problem. Once again, it's women and children who are most exposed to that. Um, so a biogas system actually produces cleaner methane um, for cooking. Um, and then it can also produce fertiliser for um, gardening, for example. So you can actually um, improve and potentially, you know, the, the quality of the, the food that you're able to grow. Um, and again, that can serve as a form of income generation, if you like, um, for selling that produce. So it is a sort of a, um, I mean, it's not something that would work everywhere, but it is um, potentially quite beneficial in some communities to provide you know, means of sanitation, a means of uh, cleaner cooking and also um, assisting in um, gardening and uh, producing food. Yeah, as you, as you say, it's not a it's not a band aid for <laughs> for everything, no. but it it sounds like at least you know one one positive example of of some action that's been taken. Changing tack completely, Hillary. Back in two thousand and nine, you were part of a CSIRO research project examining thermal stress, urban environments, and health. We're sort of getting towards the end of our interview, so we don't have a lot of time, but could you briefly tell us about your findings with that? Yeah, look, one of the interesting things, and this brings us back to, you know, which populations are most vulnerable. Um, If you're looking at an urban environment, um, you know, people who live in leafy green, wealthy suburbs, their uh, temperature, uh, surrounding temperature doesn't get as hot as people who live out, um, for example, in... Um, areas which are less green, more, um, you know, where you've got sort of uh, houses sort of next to each other with no eaves, you've got very little greenery, you've got few parks, you know, they tend to be the sort of poorer areas. Um, So if you look at a um, a satellite heat map of a city, you can very much see that it's the wealthy areas that tend to be cooler and the poorer areas that tend to be hotter. Gee, so how much variation would there be between those areas? Yeah, look, you'd get a variation of several degrees, which, you know, on a hot day makes a a huge difference. And if you combine that with the fact of, you know, who, uh, which houses are more thermally um, sort of protected, you know, the ones that are well insulated and so on, they will tend to be the wealthier houses. And can afford air conditioning. And the access to air conditioning as well. Mm. So you've got all of those factors combining um, to produce, um, you know, quite a differential in terms of uh, exposure to heat during those extreme heat days. So there is, um, yeah, so some projects around looking at retrofitting, um, uh, particularly social housing, so having a look at ways that you can improve the thermal performance of social housing um, so that, um, you know, people who are living in those houses are a little bit more protected from, from extreme heat. 
So you've written recently a, a chapter in a book called The Cold Truth. Is, is that available yet and what does it cover? Sure. So The, the Cold Truth is uh, written by David Ritter and it's, um, it's, it is starting to become available in bookstores. I've heard it's, um, it's physically available in some bookstores and you can pre-order through UWA Publishing. Um, so the, the subtitle of the book is The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy. Um, and it has a number of contributions by, by various people. And I've got a chapter in there on um, the public health impacts of coal mining. Okay, Fantastic. so that's a general coal mining impact. Well, particularly new coal and particularly the impacts of the Adani coal mine. So it's using the, using the evidence that we know of the dangers of coal at every stage of production from mining, transport, through to combustion and so on and the health impacts of that and as an argument as to why we don't need to be mining coal in the Galilee Basin. Because there's been many other aspects of the Galilee Basin covered prolifically but not the health one so much, has it? No, that's right. So, yeah, so this very much talks about how the, the, the impacts that it's likely to have on the communities, the surrounding communities, um, and that's only when things are going well, but also the impacts that it's going to have where it's going to be burned in India. So, you know, as, as we know, India has um, quite a pollution problem already. And one of the things about the Adani coal mine is that it would lock India into burning coal for decades to come. So rather than transitioning to renewable energy, it would actually lock India into burning coal. And the, the, mine for, uh, the, the quality of the coal from the Galilee Basin is actually very poor quality. It's, um, mm. it's, yeah, it's they... got twice the ash content. We wouldn't burn it in Australia, but we're quite prepared to ship it off to India. <laughs> yeah, our Minister <laughs> for Energy keeps trying to say it's better quality coal, so we have a moral duty, which is absolute rubbish. rubbish. <laughs> yeah. So, Hilary, just to finish off, if you had a key message for listeners from, from what you've seen and studied and evaluated, what would that be? Sure. Well, look, we can adapt to climate change to some degree, um, but with those, there's quite a, there's a significant limit to our to our capacity to adapt, and we we don't know where those limits are. Um, at the moment, I'd say we're already passing them in in some ways. I mean, the the thunderstorm asthma event that we saw recently in Melbourne suggests that you know we're, we're not coping with what climate change is already throwing at us. Um, so, you know, the easiest, the simplest, the most cost-effective way that we can reduce the health impacts of climate change is actually to um, minimise um, the amount that the climate is changing. So at the moment, we've, we've already warmed by one degree on average globally. We're well on track um, to, um, to, you know, even if we um, put in place a whole lot of mitigation strategies, two degrees is very likely. That's going to be um, cause quite significant impacts. We're actually on track for four to six degrees mm. at the moment. So we need yeah. to really just pull out all stops now. It is just, an emergency. It is yeah, an look, emergency. The only thing we, we can really do um, that will have any significant impact is if we reduce our emissions dramatically, and that means um, leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Um, it means certainly not developing any new coal mines. Um, yeah. We need, you know, Australia needs to leave 95% of its coal in the ground um, where it is and not. Thank you so much, Hilary. So that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much. No worries. Thank you, everybody. Thanks We've been Thanks speaking to Professor Hilary Bambrick about the health implications of climate change. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to the website bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and, and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to joining you again next week.
Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.